I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. Welcome back to the Celtics Blog podcast. And I'm joined by Celtics legend and voice of the Boston Celtics, Mr. Mike Gorman. Thank you for joining us today, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Adam. How you been keeping during the lockdown? Interesting, to say the least. I mean, certainly something that we uh, never foresaw happening in our lifetime to have something like this come down and to uh, not only be uh, just attack the whole planet at, at, at once. Um, so, uh, yeah, we kind of quarantined ourselves. Uh, actually, when we first heard about it back on March 11th, uh, one of our players was tested positive immediately. So I, would, I was quarantined for 14 days. And then uh, I came back up here to a house that uh, my wife and I bought about 15 years ago, which is on a lake in, in the middle of the woods. And we've been here, we just hold out here for the last eight weeks. Uh, so it's been, it's been kind of fascinating. I mean, we hunt down firewood. Uh, it's, 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 it's cool. It's, it's like a real throwback. We've been living off the land. Yes, exactly. Really, we're trying to. And, and, and trying to, uh, it, it's, it's like being in a camp. Um, but, but, but it's a camp where you have your own rules, so it's good. And it's good that you're able to get away from the city where everything's so bad, because I've heard that Boston's had it quite bad. It's one of the worst affected states. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it got really intense in Boston. I've only been back in the eight weeks. I drove up, uh, we drove up about two weeks ago to, because when we came down here, we originally thought we were going to be here for a couple of weeks, maybe. And then all of a sudden, after week six, we realized there was a lot of stuff back in the apartment back in Boston that we needed. So we drove back up and, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of frightening to be honest with you because we drove into Boston at two o'clock in the afternoon. There were no cars. The streets were empty. Um, where the Boston garden and where the apartment I have is located, um, there was all, all this construction was going on to build this around North station, the train station. Um, and they all bars, restaurants, the whole street is bars, restaurants and hotels and the, and the garden. And the construction on the garden had stopped. All the bars and restaurants were closed. So what is usually a extremely busy downtown street was just totally deserted with a few people in, wearing masks walking around. So, uh, yeah, you did really have a feeling that you were kind of in uh, some sort of movie, a movie you didn't want to be in. Yeah, exactly. the horror movie that you hope you never find yourself in. The exactly. masks do a lot as well, though, like to add to that fear factor. You see people walking in a mask. Yeah, because you just can't tell if they're smiling at you or they're spitting at you, you know. Um, that's Your eyes become uh, the, the mirror to your soul. That's, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know it, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's, it's interesting to see how people fight it. They, they don't want to believe it's happening, so they're not going to wear masks. They're not going to wear gloves. They're just gonna, they're going to go out and they're going to do what they want to do. Um, and then there are other people who just – lock themselves in the room and don't want to come out. I think we're somewhere in the middle. The nice part for us is that um, we, can, we can go out in the morning. We go out every morning and walk about three miles uh, around this lake, and you maybe see two or three other people over the course of an hour and a half that, that you walk. Um, and then at night, we kayak every night for about 45 minutes to an hour on the lake. So, um, and again, it's like being at camp. What time is it? Oh, there's an activity scheduled soon. <laughs> Was you, are you good at kayaking or is that a skill you've been working on over the last few weeks? Uh, I'm pretty good. We've, been, we've, we've had this house for 
10 years and we've kayaked for 10 years. I, I don't do a lot of ocean kayaking um, because I'm not really looking to go fight the waves. Uh, but uh, we do a lot of lake kayaking. Go And, you know, kayaks, as you know, you can go hike, you can, you can carry them, they're light enough. And then you can uh, find some deserted lakes. It's kind of nice. No capsizing, no? No. That's good. That. That's good. I was hoping for a funny capsizing story, though. I was. No, no. <laughs> so as no, I, I, don't go, I don't go with, I don't take Tommy on those trips with me. He would be the source of all those stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming you've got some great stories with Tommy. Tommy's, Tommy's a piece of work. He's a, he, yeah. Dude. I could go along for a long time on Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> all favorable, too, mostly. I mean, you've been on the road with him for how many seasons now? Well, he stopped about three years ago, but we were we were on the road for 25 years together. Um, you know, we're, uh, the number boggles my mind when I think about it, that we're going on 40, 41 years, actually, of, of broadcasting games together. That, that, that freaks me out when I think about that, that, that number. But he, he's, he's kind of like, right from the very beginning, I'll tell you a quick story. At the beginning, the first game that we did, we did – I was working at a radio station uh, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and I was doing Providence College uh, games on the radio. And I got the weekend TV job in the same city, and they had a deal with Providence College that they would do four or five games a year of Providence College's games. And Providence College at the time was pretty good. So um, they said to me, well, you, you'll do the games, but who are you going to work with? And I said, well, why don't we try to get Tom Heinsohn? And they said, oh, you'll never get Tom Heinsohn. And I said, well, why not? Let me try. So I called the Celtics got the number for Tommy back in those days. People passed that stuff out. They gave me his number. I called Tommy and he said, sure, I'd love to do it. So we did a couple of games together. And then about two years later, the Celtic job opened up on cable, which was at the time, not many people had cable. Um, the Celtic job opened up. They hired Tommy as, as the color guy and Tommy recommended me. And then we went together. So before we do the first game together <clears throat> with the Indiana Pacers and I'm, I'm up in the booth an hour and a half before the game, getting ready. And I, I got notes up the yin-yang. I got color-coded things. I got, I got stories about you and stories about this person all written down and scoring averages and free throws. And it's multicolored. It looked like somebody worked on it for years. So, so Tommy comes walking up. He takes a look at it. He goes, what's that? And I said, uh, those are my notes. And he reaches over and he crumples up the notes in a little ball and throws them off the balcony that we're standing on. And he says, we don't need those. We're going to talk about what we see in front of us. And that's what we've done for the last 40 years. <laughs> I, haven't done no, I haven't done notes again. Um, and, and that's really, you know, we're, we're a little different than, than most people in, in terms of broadcast. I, I like to say we're an acquired taste. Um, but uh, we just talk about the game. We don't really talk about what's, what may be going on outside in, in players' lives or, or don't give you background information on the players that he was born here, did this and that. We just, we just call the game as we see it. And, and sometimes let long periods of time, 35, 40 seconds, 50 seconds go by where neither one of us says anything. Um, and things happen on the court, but you know, I've always, it's TV. You're supposed to be watching. You're not supposed to be listening. And, and, and my voice and Tommy's voice should only ideally enhance what you see. But the first point is you seeing it as opposed to me saying Adam in the right corner with the ball does blah, blah, blah. That, that's radio. You know, TV, give the viewer some credit and, and make the viewer responsible for what they see and then we'll react to it. So um, that, that's how we do games. And so it's great because I don't have to do notes anymore. 
and just show up and do the game. I mean, that adds a lot more fun to the job though, right? Not having to do the research based with it. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, when you've been doing it for as long as I have, and, and, and when I first started doing the Celtics, which was really beneficial to me, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I first started doing the Celtics, I just did the home games. So when they went on the road, I went and did the big East which at the time was the best basketball conference in the country. It was Patrick Ewing. It was Georgetown at their peak. It was Syracuse and the Carrier Dome with 28,000 people watching the game and um, just ratty little gyms like Boston College. Um, And so it was the best of all worlds, and it was great college basketball. So I I actually went for a long period of time before I got married. I couldn't do this after I got married. Um, I would do the Celtics on Sunday afternoon in Boston. I would travel somewhere on Monday to do a Monday night game for ESPN. Tuesday, I would do a game for the Big East Television Network somewhere. Wednesday, I'd come back to Boston and do the Celtics. Thursday, I'd go do a Big East game somewhere. Friday, I'd do the Celtics. Saturday, I would do a noontime game for the Big East Regional Television Network. And then say I'd do that at Boston College. Then I'd drive after the game to Providence College and do a game on Saturday night at Providence College. Then I'd drive back to Boston, stay in a hotel, and start the week over again with the Celtics. So there was one year where I think I did over a three-month period, which would be three times 30, it'd be like 90. I think in 90 nights, I did something like 102 games. I did more than actually average more a game a night. And that included travel. And travel in those days was so much different, obviously, than travel now. So you could, you could find a flight anywhere. You could do a game in, in, at Madison Square Garden and jump out to LaGuardia and get a flight to Syracuse at four o'clock in the afternoon and do the game that night. So um, I just kind of lived on the road. Um, and it was, it was always, the, the Big East was so good at that time that you, Monday night there'd be 28,000 people in the Carrier Dome where they played Georgetown and the place was going crazy. So you, you would just live on the adrenaline of the crowd. Tuesday I'd come back to Boston College, and they'd be playing Providence College, and there'd be 13,000 people at Boston Garden going crazy. Then I come back the next night, and it's the Celtics going crazy. So you, people would say, didn't you get tired? And I'd say, well, I'd be tired until I walked in the building. But as soon as I walked in the building, you get amped up again because of the whole atmosphere and everything that's going on. So it, it was great. But what, what led me to tell you that story is I got to know so many players on the college level that when they came to the pros, I knew who they were already. I knew their whole life story because Ray Allen was a great example. Ray, I met Ray when he was 17 years old, being recruited by University of Connecticut, then did all his games through college. And then he comes back as a first time as a pro. We're old pals. Uh, so um, the, the link of one to the other, and because the Big East was so good, so many of their players came to the pros that uh, Tommy would say to me, who's that kid? And I go, oh, I'll tell you about that kid. I'd talk for five minutes on who the kid was. And with all the experience you've had in all the different stadiums, college, NBA, do you agree that the garden is where the best atmosphere is? Or do you feel like some of those college games have more electricity? The garden, it's funny. There are, I used to say there are three kinds of basketball that I liked. I liked NBA playoff basketball, number one. I liked college basketball, number two. And then I liked NC, uh, NBA regular season, number three. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Boston Garden was always a great place to play because they were always sold out. And I came the same year that Larry Bird came, so that was very fortunate for me. Um, and um, they, they, we had one stretch there, Tommy and I, where in three years we broadcast four games where we lost in three years. 
I mean, that's Every a fantastic year. time to be brought so, And yeah, it was great because you, you, you find out early on in your career as a play-by-play announcer that if the team's good, people think you're good. If the team's bad, people think you suck. So um, I had a great team. I walk in out of the blue. People don't know who I am in, in, in the city of Boston because I really wasn't anybody except this guy from Providence. Um, but because the team was so good, they were willing to accept me and give me a chance. Um, whereas if the team had been bad, it's they're not going to change the team, but they changed the announcers. Um, so we, Tommy and I started off at, you know, Larry Bird shows up. We All of a sudden we won a championship. And the first five years I did the Celtics, they won three titles. I'm thinking, this is, this is great. This is going to happen all the time. Then they, then they sucked for like 12 years. Um, that's when Tommy and I really earned our money. <laughs> the Rick Patino years. One thing that I have a running joke with a few of my friends, like I tend to try and stay up for the Celtics games, unless it's a West Coast trip, is mm. we in a group chat, we all say that sometimes if it's like you're goading Tommy to be upset with the refs a bit more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. true. I've always yeah, made it to Sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll lose focus for a short period of time, uh, usually while he's eating, um, which he does constantly during the broadcast, which is always kind of funny. When they, uh, when they had the, all the hurricane problems down in um, New Orleans a few years back, <clears throat> they were trying to promote the seafood industry. So every time you would go do a game in New Orleans at halftime, literally they would show up with this huge platter of fried shrimp, fried fish, fried clams, mussels, everything to promote the seafood. And they, they put it in front of us and you eat that during the second half. Well, or you're supposed to eat it during timeouts. Well, Tommy just constantly would eat his way through the half. So I would try to get him to say more with his mouth full because I thought it was funny. Um, and uh, people, we used to get a lot of internet comments from people like, you know, what's Tommy eating now? You know, you should see, you should see that in front of him where it is, other guys in front of him, usually their notes are spread out nicely. Tommy has like, M&M's, Hershey bars, just all sorts of stuff spread in front of him. Just gnaws his way through the game. Living, living the best life. It's like going to the, cin- the movies with uh, movie snacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like these new theaters that have the reclining chairs now and they order a beer before the movie. That's really That's a good deal. Does he bring the footstool with him? Uh, pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. close. <laughs> when, he settles, when he settles in, he's in there for the long haul. What about you? Do you um do you eat? We used to, funny story about Tommy is we used to um he used to be a chain smoker until uh, unfortunately his wife was also a chain smoker and she passed away from lung cancer and he quit about fifteen years ago. But um he used to smoke and he would smoke during the game, just one after another. Um and when we would do stand ups on the floor, he would have a cigarette going. And then when they'd, they'd start to say, you know, all right, Tommy, we got to do the stand-up, they take the cigarette and he just put it behind his back. And so we'd do these stand-ups all the time. We'd see the smoke coming up out of the top of his head. People <laughs> would say, Tommy's on fire. And go, yeah, pretty close. And do you have any in-game rituals? Do you, uh, I'm assuming you don't sit there eating through the game. Do you have anything that you like to do to keep yourself I used occupied? To eat, I used to eat peanuts all the time. Uh, and, and then they got a little... Uh, and I, I got to admit, for the first 10 years or so, I also was a cigarette smoker. And we used to do the game in the... Um, the old Boston Garden had, a, had two balconies. But on the first balcony, there was a thing that was called the gondola. And that's pretty much what it was. It hung over the edge of the balcony. And that's where you broadcast the games from. 
Um, and it was a great broadcast position because you were probably about no more than 20 feet back from the court and at a height of about 15 feet. So you could see everything happen right in front of you. It was just a great place to broadcast. But it was literally a gondola that hung on these two things. So if the ground got going, the thing would shake like crazy, okay? Um, so we used to have some issues with, with, with that. And um, the fans sometimes could get ticked off at, at both of us because all this smoke was coming out of the, <laughs> the two of us over the course of the game. So, um, yeah, we've, we've kind of cut our own path through there. And how did the opposing team's stadium staff deal with you guys smoking and eating on the road? Uh, the eating, they didn't mind. The smoking was an issue, became an issue. Um, I, and I quit probably about 30 years ago now. Um, so it didn't bother me as much as did Tommy. Cause I mean, I mean, Tommy was a, Tommy was such a, I shouldn't say was cause Tommy's still going strong. Um, but he was the only guy I ever knew who would smoke while he ate. So if you were at a restaurant and he ordered dinner, he'd have dinner in front of a man, a cigarette going right beside dinner, and he'd smoke in between bites of his food. Usually smokers smoke after they eat, right? He just smoked all the time. <laughs> I'm the, was you allowed to smoke on planes at one point? I'm, yes, yes. We used to smoke on planes all the time, yeah. Now there's no chance that's happening anymore. No, <laughs> you get in the airport smoking. Forget about it, get on the plane. Yeah, did um the dogs will have you straight away. Yeah. So what else have you um when you've been on the road and you've been with all these players and you're with Tommy and you're with nowadays like Scal and yeah. Once the game's finished, what do you guys like? What's your end of game routine? Do you go out for beers or? Yeah, we usually we'll go out for beers for sure. Um, it, it it's. There aren't that many good cities where you can find something good to eat around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Um, you can find a lot of bar food, uh, but you can't really find dinner anywhere that, that, that's serious. So um, post-game routine is pretty much just we meet somewhere. Uh, usually it's a fellow named Paul Lucy who's been our producer for 20 years and is a great guy, uh, a dedicated beer drinker. Um, so he's always organized someplace that's got like 50 different varieties on tap. Uh, and we'll, we'll we'll go out there after the games. Abby, you know Abby, our sideline girl, she's the best. Um, so it'll be me, Scal, uh, Abby, Paul, and our graphics guy Zach. We're kind of like a fivesome that just go out all the time after every game. And uh, three or four beers later, make it back to the hotel. Three or four beers is reasonable. It's not too much. I think it's I think it's reasonable, especially when you've been talking for the past two and a half hours. You know. Oh, for sure, you need to get that moisture back. That's exactly right. Uh, three or four beers is perfectly fine. Yeah, you need to listen too. It's it, you have to because you forget how to listen during a game. <laughs> you just get to talk. I mean, that's fun though, right? Like get it, especially when there's like a LeBron's on the court and you two are having a discussion about LeBron. Yeah, I, it, Tommy and I see the game very differently in that sense, and um, he has really good reasons to to see it the way he did because he was so successful both as a player and a coach. Um, which is basically you run all the time. You just run up and down the court all the time. Um, which it, And I would get in arguments with him about this, or discussions, not really arguments, but discussions with him about this. But I had to admit that he, he was right in the sense that you look back at those old, older players of his generation and you say, well, athletically, they were nowhere as good as the Michael Jordans and the LeBron Jameses this year. But um, if, you look at, if you look at the old box scores and the lines from those games, 
in the NBA last year, I think the average number of field goal attempts per game was like 85, 86, right in that neighborhood. If you look at Tommy's team and Russell's teams that won all the championships, they had an average of 125, 130 field goal attempts a game. So they were taking 50 more shots a game than they were today. Um, and so you say, well, gee, were they better athletes? They weren't, my main thing, they weren't better athletes. They just never played any defense. Um, and that's why, in my mind, that's why Russell was such a revolutionary guy in terms of his effect on the game, because he was the only one defending. Um, everybody else was just kind of like, you shoot it, I'll shoot it, you shoot it, I'll shoot it, we'll total it up at the end and see who wins. Um, but the, I, I'm not going to really do anything to aggressively try to stop you. Uh, it's, it's, it's like we had social distance in those days. Um, you, you stayed that far away from the guy you were covering. And the game now, as you say, it's completely different. That's why, that's why everybody loves Marcus Smart, right? How do you, do you speak to Marcus during or well, before? My favorite, or after? my favorite player. My favorite player on, on the current roster uh, is Marcus and has been for a couple of years now. Um, I love the way he plays. I love the intensity with which he plays. Um, he is not looking to – again, I don't want to sound like the old-timer in the room, but in, in the 80s, you never saw Larry Bird go up and hug Judas Irving before the game and shoot the breeze at half court. I mean, he wanted nothing to do with, with the other team. Um, and that, that attitude filtered down through all the Celtics, so nobody was around shaking hands. Now, it's, it's like this men's club. They're all, they're all in it together. Uh, you know, one team comes out to, for warm-ups, another team comes out for warm-ups. Next thing you know, there's five guys at half court from each team hugging each other, talking about, I don't know what, life in general, what they're going to do but certainly not talking about the game that's about to be played. So, it, you know, you go in there, I, I, I think it's disappointing as a fan because you go in there as a fan, like, you know, you know I hate the Knicks. I just, you know, we're, we're going we're to kick their ass tonight. Um, and then you look out there and they're hugging it up at, at, before the game and you're, you're ready to throw a beer on the guy with the Knicks shirt on over there. Um, and you, your guys that just you're trying to stick up for are palling around with the Knicks. So I, I, the intensity is gone from a lot of uh, the NBA games. In the playoffs, it's different. But in the regular season, they're too friendly with each other for my good. I, 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 have emotions, I, I, want some, I want Marcus Smart. I want somebody who's edgy. Uh, I don't want somebody who's uh, laughing as the guy's covering him, you know, and they're, they're joking back and forth when there's a real game being played here. Or blowing in somebody's ear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So before tying the shoe. <laughs> so before you was um a re- like work, you said you was working in radio before you started covering the Celtics. What yeah. led you up to working in radio? I was uh, I got out of college and and uh, at the time that I got out of college, everybody had to serve in the military in one way, shape, or form. So um, I went in for what I thought was going to be a two year stint in the Navy. It turned into almost eight years. Um, and uh, I was a naval aviator, and it was it was kind of interesting. But eventually, when I got out, I had I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And while I had been in the the, the navy, you get um, you have a collateral duty, as they refer to it, as, aside from the missions that you fly when you're on the ground with your squadron. You have a job. Everybody in the squadron has a different job. And one of the jobs I had was I had to run the all officers meeting every day, which was went from eight to eight thirty in the morning and told people what they were going to do. And I found I liked being in front of a crowd. 
I, 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 I felt comfortable in front of a crowd. I could, I could speak, I could make jokes, I could, I could laugh at people. I could, and I just felt very comfortable in front of a crowd. So when um, I got out of the Navy, I came back home for a while and I took a couple of interviews with medical supply companies trying to see, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. This is going to work at all. Um, so I, I decided to try to get a job in radio. So um, I'll tell you a quick story because it's true. Um, WBZ is a big station in Boston, but I didn't know big stations were small stations. I just knew WBZ was big in Boston. And they had a guy named Gil Santos, who was the morning sports guy. And I was thinking, like, that's the kind of job I'd like to try to get, be the morning sports guy on the radio station. So I pull up to get at the radio station, and there's a security guard there inside a little house. He says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here to see Gil Santos. And he says, does Gil Santos know you're coming? And I said, no. Uh, and he said, well, you just can't come. And, you know, he, he's, he's got a job in there. He's working. And, and I said, oh, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, he said, what do you, what do, what'd you do? Do you have any experience? And I said, no, I just got out of the Navy. And he said, you were in the Navy? I was in the Navy, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, this guy becomes my best friend. So um, he says, let me call Gil. Let me see if Gil's got a few minutes, okay? So he picks up the phone. He goes, Gil, yeah, I got a guy out here. I'd like to meet you. He seems like a nice guy. He's been in the military. He's trying to look for a job in the business. Sure. Okay, fine. He says, sure. Gil will meet you in the lobby and talk to you. So I go in. I sit down. I talk with this guy, Gil, in his office. He's sitting behind the desk. I'm sitting out front. He talks to me for about five minutes. He says, let me, hold on a second. Picks up the phone. He makes a phone call. He goes, Paul, yeah, McGill, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, I got a guy here sitting in front of me. Five years, Armed Forces Radio Television. Great experience. He'd be perfect for you. I'm going like, who's that guy? I don't know who this guy is. He goes, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, I'll tell him. Fine, Frank, Boom. hangs up the phone. He says, you know where New Bedford, Massachusetts is? And I said, yeah. He said, go there. Paul Levesque's going to meet you for lunch. He's the general manager of the radio station there, okay? Um, small 50-watt radio station in a small town uh, bordering Cape Cod. Okay. So I get down, I sit and talk to the guy for, for about 20 minutes. I get along with him. He's about my age. He says, let's go out for lunch. We're out for lunch. We have a couple of beers at lunch. And he says, do you, you ever play softball? I said, yeah. And I had, that was my sport. Okay. And I was, I was pretty good. I was, I played on a Navy team that tra- used to travel all around and would play benefit games and stuff, fast pitch softball, fairly high level. So he says, we got a game tonight against our rival radio station in town, and it's for charity. Will you come and play for us? I said, sure. So I go. I hit four home runs and four at-bats, okay? Because it was flop softball. It was like, you know, there were disc jockeys and salesmen, and they didn't know how to play the game. So um, we win. They're all happy. At about midnight that night over about our ninth beer, uh, I get hired as the public affairs director of the radio station. So... The next day, I have a job. So I'm down there reading public affairs announcements, uh, meeting the school committee, this, that, whatever, on the air. So I'm getting some experience on the air, but that's all I'm doing. And so I go to Paul, and I say, uh, I say, I want to do sports. And he says, if you can sell it, we'll do it. Okay? So I say, okay. One moment. I was Siri checking in for some reason. Um, so... Anyway, I go out and I sell basketball games, high school basketball games, high school football games, boxing matches, you name it, I sold it and then did it. Um, And that's where I got my experience. And I was thinking, this is fun. I really enjoy this. Um, So I was doing 
high school football on a Saturday afternoon, and I got a call on Monday morning from a guy in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a big step up from New Bedford. Um, worked at a radio station there, was driving home, heard me on the radio, thought it was pretty good. Would I be interested in the job? I said, yeah. So you'll get a kick out of this. So I said, yeah, I'd love it. And he said, okay, I want to make you our New England correspondent for our news. I said, that's awesome. I said, I got to give two weeks notice here. There's this silence on the phone. He goes, no, don't give notice. I said, why? He said, well, here's what you're going to do. Every morning when you come in, go to the AP wire, rip the AP wire. And if there's a fire in Worcester, Massachusetts, read the story. And at the end of it, say, in Worcester, I might go in for WPRO news. And then if there's a murder in Portland, Maine, read the thing. At the end, say, in Portland, Maine, I might go in for WPRO news. And if there's something going on in Boston, read that. And in Boston, I might go in for WPRO news. And I go, but I won't be in all those places. It's, again, silence on the phone. He goes, let me see if you understand this right. And he goes through again what he wants me to do. And he says, if you do this, I guarantee you the program director here within three months will be so taken with how dedicated you are jumping all around to all these places doing the news, he'll offer you a job. I said, okay. So I said, in the, in the three months that this happens, you don't get paid. I'm not paying you anything. You do this, you'll get this job. Six weeks into doing the job, I get this call from this guy going, hey, every morning you, I'd love to come over here. I go and get a job there. Same thing, public affairs director again, but at a bigger radio station. Again, I go to the guy and I say, can we uh, sell sports? He's like, no, we don't do sports. We don't do sports here. So it took me a while, but after about six months of badgering them, I sold URI basketball, University of Rhode Island basketball. I did their basketball games on radio. I just, I had no experience. I just did them. Um, and Tommy heard me. And next thing I know, I'm doing this, doing the Celtics on cable. All happened in about, I get, I get out of the Navy, not knowing what I wanted to do, had three different jobs, and was doing the Celtics a year and a half later. That's so crazy. Just, bing, just went bing, bing, bing. Yeah. But I, was, I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And, uh, well, the work ethic as well of going all, all across this, the city. Pardon me? And the work ethic as well, going from place to place. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Here is another, another thing I learned. We're doing boxing, okay, in New Bedford. And uh, we had a kid who was a pretty good fighter. And he, so he's fighting up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about an hour drive from New Bedford. But nobody made the trip. So we put it on the radio and... I kind of made up the fight because the fight was boring. But as we, as I, I'm leaving, before I'm leaving, Paul, my buddy, hands me this notebook. He says, here's all the commercial copy that you have to read. And so I look at it and I look at it and I saw these 30 second spots and the 30 second spots are all written out, typed out. And so um, I look and I realize between the first and second round, there's three 30 second spots, but there's only 60 seconds between rounds. So I look at Paul and I say, I say, Paul, this seems to be a mistake here. There's three thirties in here where there's only two, uh, a minute of uh, opportunity. And he goes, read fast. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. So then we came up with another thing when we're doing URI basketball. I would sell you spots on URI basketball if for an extra 20 bucks a spot. If I say I sold you five spots for 80 bucks. For an extra 20 bucks, I'd put your son in the game. So guys would buy it all the time and would be playing. And at the, it always would be the end of the fourth quarter. 
at the end of the second half rather than college basketball. In the last eight minutes, I would make your son a player for the opposite team and make sure he scored a couple of baskets. And these guys who had like seven, eight-year-old sons just thought this was the best gift in the world. Became a regular feature, honestly. Nobody knew about it. For years, we just make... That's when I learned that you, uh, you kind of make stuff up. That was, that was the best education. I, I, I run into guys all the time. I ran into guys all the time who went to University of North Carolina, Syracuse, all these great broadcasting schools. They had no clue what to, how to do anything because they had never worked out in the real world. Um, in the real world, uh, Paul sold, my guy Paul, sold the New Bedford Country Club Golf Championship. He said, you're going to do golf on a Sunday afternoon. I said, oh, that'd be fun. He said, that'd be great. So I get over to the country club and I, I'm thinking there's going to be some guy there with a, with, with, you know, he says, there's a payphone right over there. Just on the payphone, call a station. They'll hook you up live to the thing. I said, I won't be able to see the golf. He said, make it up. He said, I'll bring you the names of the people who are on the scoreboard. You just make it up. So I would just go like, you know, all right, Adam's got a 10 footer. Ooh, ooh, just rimmed it out there. You know, <laughs> there's no way that could happen these days. No, 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 it couldn't have alone get live on their phone. Yeah, no, we just we just made it all up. I used to make up the fights for fun. The fights would be <clears throat> they'd be really dull. You know, these guys would dance around, never swing at each other. And I'd be going, left of the body, right to the head, he looks hurt. He's hurt. I think he's hurt. You know, nobody nobody had touched each other yet. <laughs> Everybody's on the edge of their seats in their car thinking, but, oh, what, what, what would happen was because we, we really got a kick out of this. The, the local newspaper wouldn't send anybody to cover the fight. They'd listen to it on the radio, and then they'd write off of that. And I was making up what was on the radio. So what was really like a boring eight-round fight, the next day you pick up the New Bedford Standard Time sports page, and it was like, Poirier and wild victory. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you were making people's careers? Uh, well, if you can call a career being popular in New Bedford, Massachusetts, yeah. It's a local career. It is. It is. <laughs> I know that we're pushed for time, so I just wanted to uh, see if there's anything else that you wanted to touch on, anything you wanted to say to the people listening. I know that we've kind of ran over the allotted time as well, so thank you for that. Yeah. I'm sorry I, I did all the talking and didn't give you a chance to ask any of the questions. That's fine. Um, I preferred that. Much easier for me. Yeah. No, I, I, I tell you the, a, a quick story. Um, a a fellow uh kid comes up to me at a game about 10 years old and um he says can i have your autograph and i say sure so i sign the kid's book because i'm and i look up and there's a guy standing about 10 feet away taking a picture of this obviously the kid's father so he says you got a minute i said sure he said how long you've been uh how old do you think a young boy is when he first starts getting interested in the sport and really wants to follow it and i said probably eight ten years old he said yeah i agree he said, how long have you been doing this? And I said, 40 years. He said, so you realize that anybody under the age of 50 only knows your voice. Um, I was like, wow. <laughs> Never heard it put that way before. Um, but but that's that's really the thing I really like is that, is that I, I'd like to thank people. And I mean, the idea of being on with you in, in London right now, one of the things about the Celtics is they're kind of a global team. And, and I've been able to ride the coattails of that a little bit so that um, I get letters from people 
all over the place, all over the world, who are transplanted Celtic fans who um, say, I still listen to your call. I find you on the satellite. I find you, I find you that. So uh, I just, is there anything I'd like to send out to people? Just thank you. That's um, really nice. You make my day when you do that. We all enjoy listening to you. It's one of the, with League Pass, you get the benefit of being able to choose which broadcast feed you want. I can't listen to other people's play-by-plays of the Celtics are playing. I always have to choose the Celtics play-by-play. Thank you. That's very, thank you. That's 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 nice. I I get I always get very flattered when like if I walk into a if I'm in a restaurant or in somewhere and the waiter comes over and says, "Yep, what do you want?" You know, and I start to say something, and they go, "Oh, I know who you are from the voice." That that's really cool. It's like creature comforts, right? Like I know what I want to listen to. So as soon as there's a game on, if it's an away game, I have I make sure I switch it back over, and it must be awesome for you, like. Every time you speak, someone's like, hey, you're Mike Gorman. Yeah, that's, it is. Because I, that's what – I I don't want them recognizing me because of the, because they recognize me in the sense of the word. But the fact that they their ear is attuned to to my voice and um, and that it's the voice they know. And that's that's always what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the voice of the Celtics. I don't want to, I don't want to be the TV guy. Uh, I want to be the voice. I think you've accomplished that goal. <laughs> right, Michael. You've definitely accomplished that goal. I want to say thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Anytime, Adam. My pleasure. Thank really you. I'll, I'll definitely reach out to do it again. Yeah, we will. 